Welcome to Talks at GS, where leading thinkers share insights and ideas shaping the world. This session of Talks at GS was recorded before a live audience. Let's start where you started with your first entrepreneurial venture, or at least your first major one, back in 1985. I think yeah. you were 23 years old. 22 and at the beginning of the year. Yeah, 20. Okay, my math is, I'm not a math guy. Yeah, just, you know, you know, when you get to be my age, every year you gotta like, you know. You gotta look back, yeah. yeah. So um, the company was called Rock Financial then. Right. Now Quicken Loans. So what did you see as an entrepreneur at that time as an opportunity set that catalyzed you to start the company? Well, I, I wish it was more of a sort of a glamorous story, but basically it was uh, right after my senior year at Michigan State and then you know, I was going to go to law school, I think, to just please my mother or something, which I did at night. And, uh, you know, we went to one of these places that today they would call WeWork, but back then it was called a gray and beige cubed shared office space that you would go in. And I th I was, I'll try this for the summer, you know, that was my thing. We'll try it because at that time in the mid-80s, there was no such thing as licensing whatsoever for mortgage brokering or anything. You literally could just, anybody, go in and do it. Not that today you still can't get in if you, you know, they allow a lot of people to come in this business still, but hey, that's the way it is. And, and you know, we went in the summer, messed a lot of things up then and continue to, and, and we try to learn from it. But I, I remember closings happening and no money showing up, you know, those kinds of things, little problems. Um, but, you know, we worked through it over the years. And, and for us, it was just, it wasn't mortgages, it was just building a company. And, and it was obviously just in the Detroit area at the time. And so far, I, so I went from delivering pizzas to that, and I've had two jobs. Basically, that's it. And when you, th when you think back to what your thesis was, Dan, when you founded the company, and, and, and what the opportunity set was that you saw, and you look at the success now, is it more because your original thesis was right, or is it the pivots and decisions and hirings and firings and things that you've done along the way that yeah. got you to where you? Well, we went in a business at the time that was so commoditized really already and it, it was nothing there was nothing special about it. there was no internet any of that business we did learn early on that um, we didn't think we had to do branches and we noticed that people didn't market or advertise home loans this is just in our area of course and you know the you know the, the thesis if you will of going to realtors and giving them donuts and getting them to refer you a loan, a loan a mortgage or whatever you're doing for them it was you know that we, we never liked that from day one so we, we started advertising early but it was more of a advertising and even technology back then using our Radio Shack uh, computers, whatever it was. So it, there was no grand thesis. It really was just sort of go in there and hustle for a little bit. But I have to tell you, it's probably the best training you could ever have is to you know, be on the ground level. I mean, still to this day, I like to be in, into the bowels of the business. I mean, that's just where the action is. So you know, that we, we were grinders, and we just kept grinding. Well, and then you and then you grew it, and it was mostly um, you know a traditional mortgage lender for the first ten years of the company. Yep. And then at one point you made a shift to go direct to consumer um, in an internet business. And in yep. hindsight, it looks like it's an obvious thing that you could have done. But but at the time you were making a bit of a leap of faith, I think. Yes. Yeah, so, so what was it that drove that? Well, it was a leap of faith. But what we did is we started setting up these call centers for home loans, which also was was sort of unheard of. People wanted to be in that face-to-face -face mode. It was your biggest financial transaction to the average person in life, still is. So people were like, I want to be in front of people. We had to convince people that, yes, we could do this over the phone. You could do it through the mail, through express mail. We actually created this product called Mortgage in a Box, which we still have a few of them around, but it really was this colorful package that we'd express mail to your home. 
you'd fill it out, express mail it back. So that was sort of the precursor to it. And we really, we had a strong reaction to that. And, and when the internet came out, we had about 28 branches in the Midwest, and we actually did surveys of our customers, realtors, clients, you know, what percent of you would put your financial information into a computer? This is like 1998, 1999. And it was like 96% said they never do it. And so we closed all the branches and started it anyway. But because, you know, <laughs> there, there was just too much, you know what, there was too much belief among these people in my office and others of what was happening with that internet and online. And I, we'd say to ourselves, if, if anything's gonna be done on the internet or online, it's gonna be intangible products. Like at that time, there were, you probably remember, there was skepticism whether, you know, somebody's gotta sit in a couch, they gotta sit in a car, they gotta look at a home. There was a lot of skepticism whether things, you know, would be done over the, over the internet online. But intangible products, man, either, either the internet's gonna be the biggest farce of all time, or they're at least gonna do things that you can't touch and feel or don't need to touch and feel. Mm -hmm. so, so we just, we dove in. And so then you re you'd run it for 15 years mm -hmm. from 1985 or so to 2000. Yep. And then you sold the company to Intuit. Yep. Stayed at the company for a couple of years to help run the business and then bought it back, I guess, two years later in 2002 with, right. a, with a group of investors. And so for the entrepreneurs in the room here who obviously have early stage businesses and they're growing them, what can they learn from that experience of selling your business, running it as part of a bigger company and then... Yeah. Buying it back. You know, when Intuit came along, the theory was, so at the time, and again, a lot of people here are probably, you know, even too young to remember, but Quicken, Quicken Software, it was everybody's checkbook. I mean, they had 25 million users using Quicken, and the idea was, we have 25 million users, and every year we'll put a little thing in there for their mortgage, and man, that's just going to be, it's an automatic. Mm -hmm. It'll just be a, you know, we'll link into where you guys are doing your thing, and, and we'll have everybody. And so I remember we closed, so they did a stock-for-stock -stock deal happened to close like literally three weeks before the whole thing crashed in the, was it the spring or the, or the winter of 2000? Yeah. And, and we did close. And then, you know, I, okay, we closed, here we are. We were about 650 people then in Detroit. And I called up, uh, you know, their software people or whoever they were. It's okay, so let's, you know, let's get the stuff in your software. Well, we'll get you in the 2004 or five version, you know, and I'm going, that's like a, that's a century for me in a way, or all of us here, that's like a lifetime. I mean, so what, what are you talking about? And well, that's, we've got all our plans. So, you know, if you're used to being an entrepreneur your whole life and, and things moving fast and things are moving faster and faster, as we all know, that kind of response is, you know, that something's, something's not right here. But meanwhile, they got a brand new CEO after they, they bought us. He was from General Electric and he just flew into Detroit one day, said, here's the keys, just pretend we're not here and go. And we did. And I stayed for those two years because I wanted to make sure it was a viable company. It was our life's work. We had 600 people there. But I did get a suspicious feeling early on that these guys aren't going to maybe hold this that long. So I hung out. And you know, they did a retirement party for me in 2002. The CEO of Intuit came in. I was like, oh, why is he coming into this? I didn't understand why. He said, I want to meet with you after. And he said, well, I'm sorry. I should have told you this before the retirement party. We want to sell you the company back. I said, OK. I stayed around. So I read through isms. Mm -hmm. which is your corporate culture guide. And we've actually provided a copy to, oh. to all the attendees here as well. My favorite is yes before no, because it yeah. kind of just says a lot. But how did your perspective on culture change over the last 20 years as you, or 30 years as you ran your company? And does it help to have it written down like that for the employees to be able to read and, and memorialize versus just talking about it? Yeah, not only do I think it's important, I think it's, it's like the single most important thing by far. It's not even close, especially in today's world when things are moving as fast as they are. So 
I like to use this sort of this example. I mean, the stuff that gets you from here to here is very very different rather than the stuff that gets you to here, right? So going zero to 30, different concept than going 30 to 60, 60 to 90. And what happens to the entrepreneur, the average entrepreneur, nine out of 10 of them is they, they don't understand why this is not working anymore because this worked, it worked, you know, it worked, right? You got to hear, but everything changes at some point. And only the folks that can move over here, it's not about working harder or trying harder, it's about changing things and operating in a different way or you can't grow because you run into something called 24 hours, right? You can only muscle a business out for so long and then you run out of time. When you run out of time, now what? Well, you better hope that everybody's guided by some form of culture, principles, philosophy, hopefully your own or, or others' input. You, should have, you certainly should have others' input on it, but once you agree upon it, these core values, philosophy, culture, whatever you want to call it, they, mo they, they drive, they don't motivate, they drive every decision, every action, behavior, and prioritization on top of it all. You can almost always go back to one of our 19 is isn't pointing there, it's not a business book, it's somewhere here, I think. Yeah. But you can, you can point back to almost any decision, anything we do, if something goes wrong, the conversation I usually have with somebody is not, you screwed that up, that's bad. I said, do you believe in who we are? Because that's really what a culture is. It doesn't define what you do, it defines who you are. And they go, yeah, of course. And I said, well, what about, let's just say yes before no. Yeah, I believe in that. So then when these guys, these young guys came to you with this incredible idea, why did you say no right away? Like, and I'm not trying to trap them or anything, I'm just trying to do it in a nice way. But you, know, you always can go back to who you are. And I gotta tell you something, when, when people really do walk the walk, instead of just talk to talk, then, then, then beautiful things happen. It's almost like magic. Yeah. Actually, talk about the one, we'll figure it out. That's another one of my favorites. Because it kind of says, let's get 80% or 90% of the information, but let's not wait for the final 10. We'll figure it out. Yeah, so there's perfectionists uh, in the world, and a lot of people have those tendencies. I think that you know, if you try to be perfect before you make a decision or roll something out, in today's world, you're going to get clobbered and you're going to get killed. Now, I'm not talking about surgeons and airline pilots and you know, things <laughs> where you, you, know, you, can't be, you can't be wrong, right? So talking about 99.99% of the companies right, that you have out there, you can't, you can't be perfect. And it's better to clean up a little bit than, than just trying to be perfect and delay six months, a year, two years, and some competitor comes out and steals your thunder. And I've seen that happen. I've seen that happen over and over again couple times in our business, but I've seen in a lot of businesses we've invested in and, and all that business. I think that perfectionism does not marry entrepreneurialism in a, in a, in a good way. So something's got to give. One or the other is going to give, and I, I prefer that the perfectionist side gives. Well, you've, you've mentioned Detroit several times. You've made a huge personal, financial, emotional investment, obviously, in the city. Where does the city stand today in terms of where it's been and where it could get to and what things need to happen for it to achieve the growth and prosperity that you, that you think it can have? So let me give you just a little bit of background. I'm a fourth generation Detroiter. You know, literally grandparents, great grandparents, grandparents, parents, myself, and my kids are fifth, born in Detroit. Now we're like Detroit farmers, we don't, we don't move. <laughs> like going, going west to me was going to East Lansing. To school. Right. <laughs> you know, you know, I'm going west, mom, where are you going? I'm going to East Lansing to school. Where's that, you know, okay. So, so uh, you know, it's always been in our, you know, our DNA too, uh, Detroit. And you know, Detroit was the wealthiest city in the United States of America for like 50 years, from like the 1920s to maybe 1965 or 70 or something like that. Literally, almost on every measure, people don't realize that. And then of course the whole thing, I mean, completely 
crashed for 50 to 60 years. And you know, I'll, I'll tell you, you know, my dad had a bar in the city, he was in the military, and then he had a bar in the city. And my grandfather had a car wash in the city. They were small business people, they never went to college or anything, but they, you know, they loved Detroit. And all you would hear about, you have to be probably, I think, maybe five, six, seven, ten years even older than me to have memories the way some of the older people used to describe Detroit. Because I, I lived there the first five years, but don't have a lot of memory, moved into a close suburb after that. But you know the way they talked about it, and then the way people would talk about Detroit when I started going out of town and places, and then reputation. So it always bothered me. And then, you know, at the end of the last decade, like 2007, 8, 9, we, we had to make a choice because we were in the suburbs of Detroit in five different buildings, and it was cumbersome and it was hard to get around. So we either could continue on with that situation, build some kind of Silicon Valley campus, which wasn't really appealing to us, or just move to Detroit and, and make a run of it. Now. One other thing was happening at the time. I, we were interviewing talent, as, as we all, we used to call them people, now they're called talent. <laughs> um, remember when they were people? Yeah. Um, so They're still people. They're still people, just yeah. talented people, talented, I guess. Yeah. Okay. Or not talented. Is it right, some are not. Okay. Yeah. So, so, so University of Michigan graduate. Now, we used to go, or we still do go, University of Michigan, Michigan State, Wayne State, Ohio State, some of the Midwest schools, and as relative comparison goes, if you're going to work in the Detroit or Detroit area, like we'd get the best and brightest because we were one of the few cool companies, right? Um, and I remember this kid, I'll never forget this, we, we offered this 22-year-old kid at University of Michigan, he's graduating in like 60 days, and we loved him, everybody loved him, and we, and, and we made him a great offer, and he said no. And like, I'm like, what do you mean no? What do you mean, how does he say no? Where's he going? Well, he didn't say, so I, just, I said, bring him in. So we brought him in. And I just, I interviewed him by myself, and we were in a suburban office building, it was like four stories, very long space, but then you could look down and see asphalt in just hundreds, if not thousands, I guess a few thousand cars. Mm. And I, his name, I think his name was Josh, they're all named Josh or Matt, right? Yeah. Josh, Matt. Makes a lot of sense. T take your pick, I can't remember his name, but it was one of the yeah, two. It's probably Josh. Probably Josh. Yeah. So I said, hey Josh, I said, you know, what's up? And he starts telling me, I like your company, sir, all this other stuff, but, uh, here, come to the window with me. He literally brought me to the window, which made me like him even more. The kid was in charge. He goes, and I go, okay. So we walked up to the window. He goes, he goes, you see all that asphalt? I go, yeah. He goes, see all the cars? He goes, yeah. He goes, do you see the apartments over there? They're like a half mile away. I go, yep. He goes, see the Max and Irma's over there? Yep. He goes, I don't want to live my life driving here, and then I'm going to walk 300 yards in February to your building, which I'm sure will be a great business, and it'll be fun and exciting. And then it's dark when I'm done. Then I'm going to walk 300 yards out, and then I'm going to go to maybe Max and Irma's on my way home to my apartment, and then I'm going to do it all again. And he said, I want a culture, I want a city, I want action, I want diversity, I want this, I want that. And just, it, it hit me like a, you know, I got to tell you, it's one of those moments that just hit you. Like, holy, you know, if we don't do, we better, God, I don't want to move to Chicago with everybody. I don't know about Chicago. I'm from Detroit. This is Detroit. And, and so we took 1,400 of our people. They didn't know it was a test, but I, I didn't tell them it was a test, but it was a test because we had a sublease that we could get out of at any time. So we took 1,400 people and went downtown in 2010, August. And I gotta tell you, not from the second day, third day, fourth day, but the first day in Detroit is nothing like it is today, eight years ago. It was sort of a desolate place, but there's still something about the action, activity, and energy of an urban core that if you've never worked in one, I'm sure most of you have, but I certainly hadn't, it, it changed everything. We all knew from day one, day one. And, and then everybody else followed, and now we're over 17,000. And 
you know, Detroit, a lot of other people are, are doing a lot of great things in Detroit, not just us. I mean, General Motors obviously is there, and the Illich family has a bunch of things going on, Little Caesars Pizza and the Tigers, the Red Wings. There's tons of entrepreneurial um, businesses. And there's only one city in America that has an office of the following companies, Google, Microsoft, LinkedIn, Amazon, Snapchat, Pinterest, and maybe there's one more I missed. Only one, one city has all of them, and that'd be Detroit now. Um, you know, there's, they're all over, you know, the, you see how I get there, right? In San Francisco, they're all over, they're not one city. But you get my point, they're all in Detroit, right? They're all downtown Detroit. So let's shift a little bit to sports and business. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you're obviously an owner in the Cleveland Cavaliers. I don't know if everyone knows this, but you also own teams in the American Hockey League, the Arena Football League, and the NBA G League. So yep. have you been able to take your business skills that you learned over 30 years and bring them into sports in a productive way, and vice versa, the stuff that you've learned in sports, sure. bringing those back to your business? So each league is different, each sport is different. The other leagues that you mentioned, the G League is the minor league team, in essence, for the Cavaliers. The other two teams were more of a, I guess I would say we're more of a landlord in those, even though you, you own the team technically. Um, so and it's just it's things that grew out of, of being in that business. Now, the problem with uh, taking your entrepreneurial skills to a professional sports team is you guys all know this because you're mostly or all entrepreneurs here. When you walk in in the morning, you got like 5,000 dials you can turn, right? You just turn, change things, hire people, fire people, implement this idea, motivate this group, you know, whatever it is, right? So in, in a professional sports team, there's three things you can do, and that's it, to improve your talent on your team, on the basketball team itself. You can draft somebody good. Well, that happens one day a year for about an hour or two. NBA has two rounds, okay? So that takes out most of the year. You can make a trade. Well, to make a trade, you first of all have to be before the trading deadline, and secondly, the other team has to agree to trade with you. People forget that. Why don't you just trade this, this, and this for this? I love getting those emails and texts. I go, if you were them, would you do that? And they go, no. I go, there, you answered the question a lot. <laughs> so, so, you know, you got to have a team willing to trade, all right? And then third is free agency, and free agency lasts about two weeks for the most part in the middle of summer. Now, your other lever is you could fire a coach in the middle of the year when you have the best record in the Eastern Conference. That works once in a while. Um, those of you who know the NBA know what I'm talking about, but that's a very unusual, hard thing to do. Um, so there's not a lot of levers on a daily basis. What is similar about it is the culture thing. You can put in the same kinds of, of culture, philosophy, belief systems, because I think they work for sports and business. Now, will the highly paid athlete who's making you know, I don't know what he's made, 50, 60 million dollars plus endorsements a year I listen to you when he's 25 years old or 30 or whatever he is. Um, most cases, probably not. Um, but you can get to a lot of them and you, if you can get to the coaches who can get to them. You can make some impact on it. And, and certainly the, the coaching and the rest of the organization. We, we wrestle with the same skills or the same, uh, I guess, conflicts in the world that the Cavaliers that I think a lot of the world wrestles with today. Like I walk in every meeting these days and it's always the metrics numbers guy versus the gut, this is what I think we should do, guys. And my thing is, I, I think if you're too far to one side of that, you're gonna get killed. Mm. And you need to have both of that in an organization. Well, it, you know, it's hard getting NBA coaches who have been strictly by eye, ear, gut to, to you know, really look at some of these analytics and metrics packages. And the ones that have, I mean, Houston Rockets have, have done a great job with it, and a few others. Certainly in baseball, you see it. Yep. But it, you, you have to have, have to have the adoption of both. So the same issues happen on the mortgage side or you know, the, the helmet making side, whatever we're in, that, that happened in the Cavaliers to some degree, but then there's that part where the control thing is 
is you know, not what you think it should be on a daily, or we would like it to be on a daily basis, just the nature of the game. As you think back on your career as an entrepreneur and these various businesses that you've run, what mistakes or mistake have you made that you know, you'd, li you'd like for the, the entrepreneurs in the room to learn from or that you think is important to know? When you're an entrepreneur and you're young, you know, you, who do you hire? Well, you hire your friend and your brother and your cousin and all these people, right? Now, if you were an NBA player, you can't, like, like, like LeBron couldn't have said it when he was with us, hey, hey guys, would you, uh, would you put my cousin and my friends on the team and put them next <laughs> to me? You look at him like, you know, what are you, are you out of your mind? Well, I think every one of you should look at your entrepreneurial company in the exact same way. The chances that your brother, sister, cousin, aunt, uncle, mother, father, whatever it is, is going to be a great player on your team because they happen to be related to you or a friend of yours is probably very small. Now, there are a handful. There are a handful that just work by the odds. But my mistakes, and it wasn't just with people I had known early on. It was, it was others that I knew. You just know in your gut. Do you ever sit around a table, and if, if this ever hits you, like this ever hits you, this, this feeling, and you look at somebody and go, I'm not really sure about, you know, you're saying that person, that woman, that man. The second that comes in your brain, it is just a matter of when. They will not be there any longer because you're not going to quit. Your, your instincts know. And my problem was hanging out to those folks just way too long, sometimes years too long. And it wasn't good for them either. They, they could do well in a different place. It just wasn't the place for them to be. It's the hardest thing in the world to, to let somebody go and move on. But I got to tell you, if you're going to be an excellent company, and I mean excellent, that, that's, that's going to be the difference. Who you have on your team is going to be the difference, in my opinion. So, Great answer. Great. Well, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you. Great. Great question. This podcast was recorded on October 18th, 2018. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part or disclosed by any recipient to any other person. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the recipient. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty, express or implied, as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any recipient is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that recipient, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.